Hello and welcome to the reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for today, February 23rd, 2023. I'm your reader, Ben Stein. So we'll begin today with some uh, news from Hot Off the Wire. Millions of Americans remain in the path of severe weather, including ice and snow that closed schools, grounded airplanes, and hobbled automobile traffic. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg announced he would visit the site of an Ohio train derailment Thursday after facing criticism for not coming sooner. Ukraine's First Lady Olena Zelenska has given a video tour of human rights violations in the country following Russia's invasion almost a year ago. Five employees of an environmental consulting firm died when a small airplane they were traveling in crashed outside an industrial area of Little Rock shortly after the plane took off. A Florida television station says 24-year-old reporter Dylan Lyons was fatally shot while covering an earlier shooting. Orange County Sheriff John Mina says the shooter then walked to a nearby home and fatally shot a nine-year-old girl. 19-year-old Keith Melvin Moses has been detained. In sports, number one Houston won in a rout. Number two Alabama needed overtime to win. The Islanders boosted their playoff chances. Alex Ovechkin returned to practice and Russell Westbrook returned to L.A. Both houses of Russia's parliament have quickly endorsed President Vladimir Putin's move to suspend the last remaining nuclear arms treaty with the United States. President Joe Biden says Russia Russian President Vladimir Putin made a big mistake by suspending that treaty known as New Start. Nearly all Federal Reserve policymakers agreed earlier this month to slow the pace of their rate increases to a quarter point, with only a few supporting a larger half-point hike. The Supreme Court seems skeptical of a lawsuit trying to hold social media companies responsible for a terrorist attack at a Turkish nightclub that killed 39 people. Israeli forces stormed into a major Palestinian city in the occupied West Bank for a rare daylight arrest raid, triggering a fierce gun battle that killed at least 10 Palestinians and wounded scores of others. Astronomers have discovered what appears to be a massive galaxies dating back to within 600 million years of the Big Bang. The findings suggest the early universe may have had a stellar fast track that produced these monster galaxies. The Biden administration says it will generally deny asylum to migrants who show up at the U.S. southern border without first seeking protection in a country they passed through. CNN Don's Lemon returns to work on Wednesday after being off for three days following on-air remarks that Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley was not in her prime. Amazon has closed its $3.9 billion acquisition of the primary care organization One Medical. The health company runs a membership-based service offers virtual care as well as inpatient visits. Microsoft is ready to take its new Bing chatbot mainstream less than a week after making major fixes to stop the artificially intelligent search engine from going off the rails. With that, we'll go ahead and move into some local news now. And this article from the Associated Press, Massive Winter Storm Brings Snow, Strong Winds, Frigid Cold from Pierre, South Dakota. A brutal winter storm knocked out power in California, closed interstate highways from Arizona to Wyoming, and prompted nearly 1,500 flight cancellations Wednesday, and the worst won't be over for several days. Few places were untouched by the wild weather, some at the opposite extreme. Record highs were set from the mid-Atlantic states down through Florida, with some places expected to reach up to 40 degrees above normal. 
The wintry mix was hitting hard in the northern tier of the nation, closing schools, offices, even shutting down the Minnesota legislature. Travel was difficult. Weather contributed to nearly 1,500 U.S. flight cancellations, according to the tracking service Flight Aware. More than 400 of those were due to arrive or depart from the Minneapolis-St. Paul International Airport. Another 3,800-plus were delayed across the country. The roads were just as bad. A major winter storm and multi-day closures are likely on interstates and secondary roads throughout Wyoming, the state transportation department said on Facebook. It wasn't much better in neighboring states. Parts of North Iowa saw snow measurements of around four inches as of Tuesday afternoon, with freezing rain mixed into the precipitation, giving way to treacherous driving conditions. Highways and main roads, while partially cleared, still saw slick spots and drifting snow. A heavy wintry mix in the afternoon, along with blowing snow, made for visibility issues in some spots. Sometimes it's physically impossible to keep up with Mother Nature, said North Dakota Highway Patrol Sergeant Wade Katermas. He warned those who venture out to dress appropriately. Often when motorists get stranded, they don't have a winter jacket. They may be wearing shorts and flip-flops just thinking they're going to get from point A to point B, and nothing is going to go wrong, he said. Kelly Cross has spent his entire 60 years in South Dakota, but even he tires of the wintry weather that often spills well into spring. Besides the regular snow shoveling at his Pierre store, KNC Westernware, he's gone through pounds of salt to keep the walkway clear. The company of his terrier Penny makes the slog to work terrible. She comes with me every day, Cross said. And with that, we'll go to our next article. Lawmakers move bills to restrict traffic cameras from Caleb McCullough. Cities and counties would lose authority to set up traffic cameras and collect revenue under a pair of bills Iowa lawmakers advanced on Wednesday. One bill would require local governments to receive approval from the State Department of Transportation before placing a traffic camera on an interstate or state highway. Local governments could only put traffic cameras in high-crash or high-risk locations and would have to exhaust all other traffic enforcement options before installing them. The proposal, House Study Bill 161, mirrors regulations set by the DOT before they were struck down by the Iowa Supreme Court in 2018, which found the department could not regulate city traffic cameras. There have been several attempts since then to rein in the use of the devices, which some lawmakers see as an infringement of privacy and argue cities are abusing the systems to bring in revenue. We do believe some kind of statewide regulatory framework is necessary, said Representative Phil Thompson of Boone, who chairs the Public Safety Committee. This is essentially just codifying what the DOT tried to do in 2018. The bill passed the subcommittee with only Republican support. Cities and counties also would be required to submit a yearly report to the Iowa DOT on the effectiveness of the cameras, which the DOT would use to determine whether to keep them in place. Representatives for cities and law enforcement agencies argued the bill would remove the control cities have to regulate traffic. There are at least 10 cities that use enforcement cameras. Three cities, LeClaire, Cedar Rapids, and Des Moines, have cameras on interstate highways. If the legislature is looking to provide a regulatory framework, I think we can work toward that, but adding state government into this would be difficult. David Edelman, a lobbyist for the Metropolitan Metropolitan Coalition told lawmakers the Metropolitan Coalition represents Iowa's 10 largest cities. 
Lobbyists also said the cameras reduce crashes and keep police out of high-risk areas. Doug Struck, a lobbyist for the city of Des Moines, said the traffic camera on Interstate 235 keeps police from pulling drivers over in dangerous areas of the road. There's no place to be, and you're going to end up injuring and killing officers, and you're going to injure the public by trying to pull people over and enforce traffic there, he said. Traffic revenues would go to state fund. Another bill, House File 313, would direct the revenues gathered from traffic cameras to the state road use tax fund, a fund that pays for state and local road improvements. Vehicle registration fees and fuel taxes are currently directed to the fund. We'll move to our next article from Tom Barton Lee of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. This article entitled GOP Bill Proposes Requiring Unemployed Iowans to Do More Work Searches for Jobless Benefits. A year after enacting stricter requirements for receiving unemployment benefits, a new Republican bill would require Iowans to conduct more job searches to get them. An Iowa Senate Workforce Subcommittee Tuesday advanced Senate Study Bill 1159. The bill would require a person applying for unemployment benefits to complete four to six job searches a week to earn benefits, depending on the number of job openings published by the state's workforce agency. The more jobs available, the more work searches one must complete. To maintain eligibility for unemployment benefits, Iowans now are required to complete four re-employment activities each week, three of which must include job applications, according to Iowa Workforce Department. To most people, if you're unemployed and asked to do four, five, or six job search requirements a week, that's not a big ask. Said bill sponsor and committee chair, Senator Adrian Dickey, Republican from Packwood, Dickey said the intent is to build off last year's law and get Iowans back to work sooner. Unemployed workers in Iowa now receive 10 fewer weeks of state unemployment benefits under a new law that took effect last year. The law reduced the length of state unemployment benefits from 26 to 16 weeks, making Iowa just the fourth state with 16 weeks or fewer of state unemployment benefits. The new law also changes the requirements for taking a job that pays less than the unemployed Iowans' previous job. Republicans touted the new law as a way to encourage Iowans to take jobs sooner and to lower taxes on businesses, which are used to fund the state's unemployment trust fund. Democrats and labor groups argue it attacks workers who lose their jobs through no fault of their own and who may lack childcare or transportation to a new job. Work search requirements may be waived if the person is temporarily unemployed and expected to be recalled by a former employer within a reasonable time frame. In addition, the work search requirement is waived for state-approved workforce training. Dickey's bill, though, would remove language allowing the employer to request an extension to waive job search requirements for up to two weeks if work is not available at the conclusion of a temporary layoff due to unforeseen circumstances beyond the employer's control. The bill defines work search as applying for a job by submitting a resume or application to a potential employer interviewing for a job or taking a civil service or military aptitude exam. Dickey, though, said the bill likely will be amended to align with existing departmental practice for satisfying the weekly search for work requirement. At least half the work searches must be from a list of known available jobs within a 50-mile radius of the workers' homes in fields in which they have experienced or identified an interest. The bill requires Iowa Workforce Development to provide a list of jobs weekly. 
The proposal also reduces maximum weekly benefit amounts for out-of-work Iowans with three or more dependents. Currently, the more dependents a worker has increases the maximum benefits. Dickey said the measure is aimed at preventing fraud. Mike Owen, Deputy Director of Common Good Iowa, said the bill will weaken Iowa industries that have seasonal unemployment, including construction. Owen, too, said the work search requirements are unnecessary given the state's success getting out-of-work Iowans back on their feet and into new jobs. The percentage of Iowans collecting unemployment who exhausted their benefits dropped to 13.7% last fall, the second lowest in the nation. Unemployment insurance is one of the most important tools we have to keep a strong, resilient workforce and economy, Owen told lawmakers. So this simply adds more work for IWD, and it makes receiving unemployment insurance benefits more difficult for people who need it. Senator Todd Taylor, Democrat from Cedar Rapids, declined to sign off on advancing the bill, echoing concerns that the bill needlessly reduces benefits and introduces barriers. Taylor, too, noted that while the state currently lists more than 71,000 job openings, many may not be relevant to some out-of-work Iowans' skill set or be close to home. Dickey responded, We should aspire all Iowans to want more than unemployment benefits. And your next job does not have to be your last job. It's just got to be your next job, he said. And maybe that allows you to take a job that's not your dream job right now, but it's your next job until you find that dream job. Dickey and fellow subcommittee member Senator Don Driscoll, Republican of Williamsburg, recommend passage advancing the bill to the full Senate Workforce Committee. Mason City Council approves AFSCME Union Local 1367 Bargaining Agreement. Mason City Council approved a collective bargaining agreement with the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees for the next three years. The AFSCME Bargaining Unit accepted the deal February 9th with the Council's approval coming in regular meeting Tuesday. The agreement covers both union members and non-bargaining employees. The deal makes a number of adjustments, including cost of living, lead person and shift differential increases, clothing allowances, and updated vacation awards for new hires. Cost of living increases start at 5.25% on July 1st of this year and climb another 4% in 2024, with a final year increase of 3.2%. City maintenance worker hired July 1st would earn a starting wage of $26.73. By 2025, that worker would be earning $28.70. This is a very good package. I know they may have wanted more, but these are good yearly increases, Councilman John Lee said. Shift deferential increased from $0.30 per hour for second shift to $0.50 per hour in third shift sees an increase of $0.40 to $0.80 per hour. The agreement has been amended to conclude to include starting times that occur during the third shift and holds the differential over throughout the shift to compensate early work hours. In addition to the improvements in worker pay, the city negotiated for some flexibility in hiring what are considered to be skilled and vital positions, including water supply operator, water reclamation operator, electrician, and mechanic. The city has retained rights to increase starting wages and vacation packages for these employee designations. We wanted to be able to make our offers attractive to those skilled positions that can sometimes be difficult to recruit for, said Human Resources Director Perry Buffington. I think it was a really successful negotiation with great people. 
Vacation package allows for employees to access vacation after six months of service with an increase in vacation allowance as years of service accumulate. Mason City man sentenced to 10 years for burglary. This from Matthew Rezab of the Globe Gazette. A Mason City man was sentenced to 10 years in prison for burglary in Cerro Gordo District Court on Monday. According to court records, a 28-year-old, Ryan Daniel Snyder, was sentenced after pleading guilty to second-degree burglary, a Class C felony, last month. Snyder was originally charged with first-degree burglary and faced up to 25 years in jail before the plea agreement lessened the charge. The original affidavit states Snyder was discovered inside a residence in the 600 block of Third Place Southeast by the owner around 6.30 in the morning, October 10th, when she returned home. Snyder allegedly assaulted the woman by grabbing her by the throat and squeezing before fleeing the scene. A temporary no-contact order was put into place between Snyder and the woman at that time. It is not clear if Snyder knew the victim. Snyder was convicted of felony domestic assault in 2015. Nurse who adopted patient's baby is sanctioned by the state, from Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. An Iowa nurse who adopted the baby of a former patient has been sanctioned for her actions by state regulators. The Iowa Board of Nursing alleges that Miriam Simon of Waverly violated state regulations that prohibit nurses from attempting to initiate an emotional, social, or business relationship with a patient for personal gain regardless of the patient's consent. In addition, the board has charged Simon with violating patient confidentiality regulations. The board alleges that Simon, while working in the obstetrics unit at Decorah's Winnesheek Medical Center in September 2021, cared for a woman and her newborn son. While providing that care, Simon allegedly engaged in conversations with the woman as to whether she wished to keep the baby or place him for adoption, according to the board. The baby, named Ezra, was eventually adopted by Simon and her husband, Travis. Ezra is now 17 months old and in good health. According to the board, it was the 43-year-old Simon who initiated efforts to adopt the child, but Simon said in an interview that's not accurate. She said after raising seven children of her own, she had no interest at all in adopting a child until the birth mother contacted her through Facebook and raised the issue. The mother reached out to me after he was born, Simon said. This hospital, for some reason, had both my first and last name on my name badge, and she later told me that's how she was able to get in touch with me. She said, I wrote down your first and last name because we had a really good connection and I just really like you. Simon said the mother was in the United States on a visa and attending school. The woman risked deportation if she dropped out, Simon said, but was also having a difficult time caring for the child while attending school and living in a dormitory. So she asked me, would you consider adopting, Simon said, and I was like, no, no, no. I have seven children, and my seventh is eight years old, and we are done. After Simon's husband expressed interest in the birth mother's proposal, Simon reconsidered and eventually told the woman that she and her husband wanted to adopt the boy. The adoption process was expensive, Simon said, but proceeded quickly, and soon Ezra was part of her family. There weren't any issues, she said, until she was at work one day and mentioned to a colleague that she was tired and had forgotten what it was like to have a newborn child at home. She explained to her co-worker that she had adopted a former patient's infant and the co-worker flipped, Simon said, telling her that she had crossed patient-caregiver boundaries and had violated federal patient privacy laws. Soon after, the Decorah Hospital terminated its contract with her, Simon said, and seven months later, she was called by an investigator from the Iowa Board of Nursing. 
According to Simon, she tried to explain to the board that she adopted the child out of a desire to help both the patient and the child. They were just like, well, you can't do that. Simon said the board made it seem as if she had taken advantage of the child's birth mother. She's Hispanic, and she's here on an international visa. And so the Board of Nursing used that, like saying she was an illegal immigrant and I took advantage of her. And I was like, she has her master's. This woman is highly educated. She's more educated than I am. Simon and the board eventually agreed to settle the charges with an agreement that stipulates she must complete 30 hours of educational training on patient privacy and take a three-day course in professional boundaries with ethics. Simon said the decision to adopt wasn't made lightly and cost $25,000. She said that every night while she rocks Ezra, the child's birth mother sings him songs in Spanish while the three are connected via FaceTime. And never did I stop to think that, like, I was doing something wrong, she says. The hurt lies in that they made me feel like a predator. What was meant to be beautiful turned quickly into stress and anxiety. North Iowa man sentenced to 25 years in shooting incident from Matthew Rezab of the Globe Gazette. A Mason City man who pleaded guilty to attempted murder last month was sentenced to 25 years in prison on Monday morning. According to court documents, Stephen Allen Tide Manson, 24, took a 9mm handgun from another man and shot him in the upper chest with it around 7.55 p.m. on November 29, 2022. The incident occurred on the 300 block of 3rd Street Northwest in Mason City. A press release from the Mason City Police Department stated that Tide Manson fled the scene that night. Warrants were issued for his arrest and he was apprehended around 1.50 p.m. the next day in the 300 block of 1st Street Southwest. The handgun also was retrieved at that time. Because attempted murder is a forcible felony, Tide Manson will be required to serve at least 70% of his sentence, which is 17 and a half years, before he can become eligible for parole. Tide Manson was also sentenced to five years in prison on a felony burglary charge, but that sentence will be served concurrently with the attempted murder sentence. Man pleads guilty to shooting woman with arrow, from Matthew Rezab of the Globe Gazette. A Mason City man who shot a woman with a bow and arrow last fall pleaded guilty to attempted murder Monday morning in Cerro Gordo County District Court. Casey John Larson, 31, is facing up to 25 years in prison when he is sentenced on March 20th, barring any continuances. Larson must serve at least 70% of his sentence, 17 and a half years, before he is eligible for parole because attempted murder is a forcible felony. The charge stems from an incident around 10.10 p.m. on September 2nd last year. The Mason City Police Department responded to a call of people yelling near the intersection of 1st Street Northwest and North Washington Avenue, according to a press release. At approximately the same time, a call went out to report that a woman near that same area had been shot with an arrow and was taken to the hospital. When officers arrived at the scene, they found a bystander who had restrained Larson. He was arrested and charged with attempted murder. And now to the Capital Notebook. Cap on awards in commercial trucking incidents passes the Iowa Senate. From Des Moines, in a bout of deja vu, lawmakers again took to the floor of the Iowa Senate to debate capping cash awards by juries for pain, suffering, and other non-economic complications, this time in lawsuits against the owner or operator of a commercial vehicle for incidents resulting in personal injury or death. The Iowa Senate voted largely along party lines, with Democrats opposed, 
to cap non-economic damages at $2 million in such cases. The bill does not cap jury awards for economic or punitive damages and allows all punitive damages to be paid directly to plaintiffs. The measure also shields trucking companies from liability over an employee's harmful conduct due to, quote, direct negligence in hiring, training, supervising, or trusting the employee, end quote, excluding cases where the driver is under the influence of drugs, alcohol, or other substances. Republicans said the bill will help Iowa businesses that rely on the trucking industry by preventing overzealous and crippling verdicts that award tens of millions of dollars in injury and wrongful death lawsuits against trucking companies. They also argued the bill would keep insurance rates for businesses down and provide predictability to commercial vehicle owners on their level of liability. Opponents, including trial lawyers, the Iowa State Bar Association, and justice-based groups, said high-dollar verdicts are not an issue in Iowa, which they said has the nation's fourth-lowest commercial vehicle insurance rates. Senate Democrats argued there is little evidence that Iowa is plagued by overzealous damage awards in these cases, and they said the right of Iowans to have their day in court and seek just damages for harm caused by a traffic accident vastly outweighs the desire of trucking companies to keep their insurance rates down and make their liability levels more predictable. The bill, Senate File 228, now heads to the Iowa House, where it failed to pass last year. State government reorganization, Governor Kim Reynolds' proposal to realign state government passed out of the Senate's state government committee on a 12-6 vote. Under Reynolds' proposal, the number of state agency directors who report directly to the Iowa governor would be reduced from 37 to 16. The proposal streamlines the executive branch of state government by consolidating existing agencies and programs. Reynolds and her staff have said the reorganization will be done without laying off any state workers and will save the state more than $200 million. She notes such a sweeping reorganization of state government has not been conducted in 40 years and that it is necessary in order to streamline government services to make them work better and more efficiently for Iowans. Some critics have expressed concerns about some of the proposed changes, and some have charged that the proposal gives too much authority to the governor. Senate Study Bill 1123 is now eligible for debate by the full Senate. Lawmakers in the House this week started their legislative process on the proposal. Energy Efficiency Repeal, Iowa law, would have no energy efficiency requirements for new buildings under a bill that advanced in the Senate. Senate File 334 repeals a number of provisions in Iowa law that require buildings and residential housing to comply with standards to reduce the amount of heating and lighting that buildings use. Lobbyists representing home builders and realtors backed the bill during a subcommittee hearing. They said energy efficiency standards drive prices for new homes up which in turn drives up the cost of existing housing. But representatives for architects and environmental groups said energy efficiency standards keep energy costs low for homeowners and the savings outweigh the costs over enough years. The bill passed the subcommittee with only Republican support. Representative Sherilyn Westrick, Republican from Ottumwa, said she thinks the bill would bring down housing costs and increase availability in the state. Daylight saving time, Iowa would, be in, Iowa would be in permanent daylight savings time if a bill lawmakers advanced becomes law. House File 242, which would require federal approval to take effect, would mean Iowa would permanently 
spring forward and not switch between daylight savings time and standard time. Two other states, Arizona and Hawaii, are in permanent standard time, but federal law does not allow a state to make daylight saving time permanent. Last year, the U.S. Senate passed a bill to make daylight saving time the permanent time nationwide, but it did not pass the House. Representative Jacob Bossman, a Republican from Sioux City, introduced the bill and said he chose daylight savings as the permanent time because it would provide more light in the evenings. He also cited difficulties children have in adjusting sleep schedules to the time change. The bill advanced out of the subcommittee with only Republican support. Compensation boards could be optional. Counties would have the option to get rid of their compensation board under a bill House lawmakers passed through the chamber. Iowa law currently requires counties to have compensation boards that set the salaries of elected officials. Under the bill, if a county board of supervisors decides to get rid of the compensation board, the supervisors would perform that duty. House File 314 also requires compensation boards to provide data on how they decide salaries. If a county has a compensation board, the Board of Supervisors could lower the recommended salary for an elected official individually rather than across the board and would also choose to increase salaries beyond the recommendation. Salaries could not be set lower than the previous year. With that, we will move into our obituaries and we'll begin with Beverly Bowman, 80 years old of Forest City, died Tuesday, February 23rd at the Westview Care Center in Britt, surrounded by her loving family. Funeral services for Beverly will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday, February 25th at the First Baptist Church, 18508 East Highway 69, Forest City, with Pastor Eric Weaver officiating. Visitation will be on 4 to 6 p.m. Friday at the Schott Funeral Chapel, 505 North Clark Street, in Forest City. Burial of will take place in the First Baptist Cemetery in Forest City. Memorial funds will be directed to the River of Life in Romania through international messengers. Beverly Jean Berenger Bowman, October 1st, 1942 to February the 21st. Beverly was born in Ruffin, Iowa, the daughter of Arlie and Viola Berenger. She was the seventh of 11 children and seven sisters and three brothers. The family lived and farmed east of Ruthven along U.S. Highway 18. Bev had many fond memories with her family and friends, including working, playing church activities, and attending and graduating from Ruthven High School in 1961. Bev married Reggie Wilson in 1961, had four children. The marriage lasted 13 years. During these years, she worked in a factory in home daycare and did secretarial work at Crawford County Human Services and Crawford County Mutual Insurance. She was preceded in death by her parents, her brother Kevin, and a great-granddaughter, Esther Jarnigan. You can contact the family with online condolences at www.shotfuneralhomes.com. Delrose Ann Rosenberg, 91, of Mason City, passed away peacefully on February 17th after a brief stay at the 100F Home and Community Therapy Center in Mason City. A memorial service will be held at Messiah Lutheran Church in Mason City on Sunday, February 26th at 2 p.m. Visitation with the family to be an hour before the service. Delrose was born in Forest City, Iowa on December 19, 1931 to parents Thorvin T.C. Hermanson and Rose Marie Hermanson. 
She was the mother of Jean Hartwell, James Rosenberg, Julie Rosenberg, Lisa Rosenberg, and many grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Dale Rose is preceded in death by her parents, Thorvin and Rose Hermanson, husband Dale N. Rosenberg, grandson David Nazar, brother Dean Hermanson, and sister Marilee Sitze. She had a lifelong insatiable curiosity for many interests, some of which included researching Arabian horse lineages, leading her to acquire, breed, and show her own horses, a passion for floral and garden design, where she expressed her talent at Krieger's Floral and Greenhouse, her study of politics, leading to many discussions about policy, social justice, and basic human rights. We will miss her smile, her giving spirit, her unconditional love, her persistence and determination, and mostly her engaged listening talents, offering loving advice. Memorials in her honor will be directed by her family to Messiah Lutheran Church. Schroeder Funeral Home, St. Ansgar, 641-713-4920. Ethan Thomas of Clear Lake, Iowa, passed away peacefully on Thursday, the 16th of February, age 35, after bravely fighting stage 4 bile duct cancer for two years in London, United Kingdom, whilst on second mint with PWC. His wife, Harriet Wheeler, and mother, Kathy, were by his side. Donations in Ethan's name can be directed to the Cholangiocarcinoma Foundation at, w, at https colon backslash backslash cholangiocarcinoma.org backslash donate. A celebration of life service will be held in Clear Lake, Iowa at a later date. Doug Keel, 69, of Thompson, Iowa, died on Valentine's Day, Tuesday, February 14th. Visitation was from 9 to 9.45 a.m. on Monday, February 20th, at the Holy Transfiguration Greek Orthodox Church. The graveside service was held at 12.30 p.m. at the Greenwood Cemetery in Radcliffe, Iowa. Bowman Funeral Home is entrusted with the arrangements. He was known for having chosen to live in his car for the last 30 years and for having ridden his bicycle from coast to coast and back and from north to south and back as well. He was a gifted artisan, carving Scandinavian-style spoons and doing Native American-style beadwork. The backseat of his car contained an orderly library, and he would often visit monasteries in various locations across the U.S. He was a member of Holy Transfiguration Greek Orthodox Church in Mason City since 2012. Memorials may be designated to Doug Keel Documentary Project at Waldorf University, Holy Transfiguration Greek Orthodox Church, Mason City, Bethany Lutheran Church, Thompson, Emmanuel Lutheran Church for City, and First Baptist Church for City, and Salem Lutheran Church in Radcliffe. Richard Dick L. Selvig, 68, of Charles City, Iowa, died Tuesday, February 14th, at his home. Memorial services will be held at 2 p.m. Thursday, February 23rd, at St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church in Charles City, Visitation will be one hour prior to the services. Please join the family for refreshments after the service at St. John in the Parish Hall. Richard Lee was born on May 21, 1954, in Marshalltown, Iowa, the son of Carl Milo and Irene Amelia Salvig. He graduated from Charles City High School. He then moved to Florida, where he worked in construction in Sarasota. In 1981, he returned to Charles City, where he owned and operated his own construction company. He purchased the family farm from his parents, where he currently lived. He raised hogs until the 1990s when he switched to cattle. He enjoyed riding his Harley motorcycle, 
following the Raiders' NFL team, and most of all, spending time with his grandchildren. Each year, he looked forward to the family Thanksgiving in Ames, Iowa. Those thankful for sharing Dick's life include his three children and many grandchildren. Preceding him in death are his parents and one brother, Tom Selvig. Arrangements are with Fullerton Hague Funeral Home and Cremation Services, 401 Blunt, Charles City, Iowa. Mary Jane Silliman of Ankeny passed away on Monday, February 7th, from complications of COPD. A private service was held. Memorial contributions may be directed to the charity of your choice. Online condolences may be left to the family at www.caldwellparish.com. Mary Jane was born on November 1st, 1943 in Forest City, Iowa. She was the fifth of eight children, the daughter of Earl Fox Jr. and Vivian May Fox. She married Dwight Silliman in 2000. Mary Jane's daughters, Melody and Michelle, and Dwight's sons, John, Jeff, and Rick, were blended into a family. They share 10 grandchildren and 10 great-grandchildren. Receding her in death were her parents, one sister, and two brothers. And our last obituary of the day, from Clear Lake, Joan Marie Smith, 64, passed away February 19th at Manly Specialty Care in Manly, Iowa. A viewing will be held Friday, February 24th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel, 310 First Avenue North, Clear Lake. A funeral service will be held 1.30 p.m. Saturday, February 25th at Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel with lay minister Mark Doble officiating. A private inurnment will be held at the Crystal Lake Cemetery in Crystal Lake, Iowa. Memorials may be directed to the Mercy One Hospice of North Iowa in Jones' memory, Ward Van Slyke Colonial Chapel, 310 First Avenue, North Clear Lake, Iowa. With that, we'll go ahead and we'll move into some sports. And we will get to our Iowa sports, but first from Nebraska. A cheerleader competes by herself at state competition, but crowd doesn't let her feel alone. When Morrill High School coach April Ott broke the news to Katrina Cole that she was the only one left on the cheer squad, sorry, I just lost, uh, she promised her that even if she couldn't compete at the state tournament, they could still enjoy the whole experience. They get fun coffee drinks, watch the more than 2,700 girls and 225 teams compete in the three-day cheer and dance competition in Grand Island and just have a good time. But Cole, the lone senior on what had been a squad of four, had other ideas. After talking it over with her mom, Della, she decided she had nothing to lose. I want to go to state and I will cheer by myself, she told her coach, and that's what she did. One and a half weeks before state, after three freshmen quit for personal reasons, Ott and Cole reworked the Lions routine into a one-girl show. Then Cole stood in the Heartland Event Center all by herself on February 17th and performed solo in the game day Class D competition. That's when something remarkable happened. Cole had expected to have a few fans in her section during her routine. Her grandparents represented the family while everyone else traveled to Omaha to watch her twin Daniel compete in the state wrestling tournament. Instead, her section was full of competitors and fans from other teams. In fact, the whole arena became part of Team Cole. I probably had the loudest crowd involvement there, Cole said. Everybody was cheering with me, and it was an amazing feeling. Darren Boyson, executive director of the Nebraska Coaches Association, said it was the first time that a cheerleader had competed by herself at state. The rest of the 115 teams in the cheer competition varied in size from 4 to 20 more girls. 
Judges weren't able to give her the same scoring opportunity as a complete team would have had, but he said they wanted to give her the chance she so desperately wanted. I'm glad she was able to finish her season, he said. What was very encouraging as the word spread was a lot of teams got behind her and supported her from the sidelines. So I think that was really special. Cole said she'd been getting texts before State from the other teams in western Nebraska, telling her how cool they thought her decision was to compete alone. But when she got to Grand Island, she found the whole solo experience nerve-wracking. Her mind went blank and she started competing, she said, and she had to rely on muscle memory to carry her through her routine. Somehow, the cheers of the crowd helped calm her down. They're going to support me and cheer me on, she remembers thinking. Even if I mess this whole thing up, I will be okay. I'm doing this by myself, and no matter what, it's going to be okay. Cole ended up eighth out of the 12 squads in her division. It was the highest the Lions had placed in the past three years. Ott said it was an amazing and wonderful experience. Cole, usually more a follower than a leader, had stepped up this year and taught the newcomers the ropes. She was a good teammate and a positive role model. Now we'll move to our Iowa sports. High school football Chris Kyle named head coach at Osage. Osage High School has a new football coach. The Green Devils named Chris Kiel to the position Tuesday afternoon. Torian Wolf, the Green Devils' previous head coach, resigned in January to pursue other opportunities closer to his hometown in Minnesota. With offseason strength and agility training ramping up, Osage quickly filled the opening. Coach Wolf resigned about a month, month and a half ago, Kiel said. I had basically said when he stepped down that I was interested in the position. I've been with the staff for seven years here at Osage. We did an internal interview, and they decided to hire me. I'm pretty excited to take a step up and try to put my own footprint, or handprint, however you want to look at it, on the program. Kielsten at Osage began in 2017 when he coached the offensive and defensive lines. He became defensive coordinator in 2019. Before he moved to Osage, Kiel coached at Burlington High School for four years. He took on a number of different roles with the Greyhounds, including positions on the varsity and JV coaching staffs. Kiel held his first team meeting at Osage head, as Osage head coach Tuesday, stressing the importance of off-season workouts. Kiel said he wants his athletes to compete in multiple sports and participate in football strength and agility training when they can. Especially at a school our size, we have to have multi-sport kids, Kiel said. We try and share kids as much as we possibly can, and that's important to the success of all of our programs. Kill inherits a team that wins 7-3 in 2022. The Green Devils lost to OABCIG in the second round of the IHSAA playoffs. Kill said the Green Devils emphasized their run game last season because they had size along the offensive line. Osage rushed for 1,382 yards and 14 touchdowns. The Green Devils gained 1,528 yards through the air last season. Quarterback Max Knudsen, who will be returning in 2023, tossed 21 of the Green Devils' 22 passing touchdowns. Kiel said he doesn't anticipate making any large-scale changes to Osage's schemes next season. He will, however, adjust his offensive and defensive strategies based on the Green Devils' personnel. I think up here, we've always tried to do what's best for the group of kids we have, Kiel said. We just have to modify depending on what we have. You know, one year we may have a quarterback that's really good, so we'll throw it around. Then the next year, we might have a big offensive line where we can run it more. We're just trying to fit the scheme to what we have. 
Keel said that the Green Devils may try to spread their offense out a little bit next season and focus on getting the ball to playmakers in space. He added that nothing is set in stone yet because it's hard to settle on an offensive style before organized team practices have begun. Kiel still wants to start establishing a team identity during the offseason, even if playbook specifics aren't finalized. That's always going to be my biggest thing. We're going to play hard, no matter what the scoreboard says, Kiel said. That's something I've stressed to them as their defensive coordinator in the last five years. I don't want to be able to tell the difference with how you play between the first quarter and the fourth. We're going to play hard all the time. I want us to be physical. I want us to carry ourselves the right way. On top of his coaching duties, Keel is a computer science and math teacher at Osage. He's also the current head coach of the Green Devils' eSports team and a National Honor Society advisor. And trying to load up our next article here. High school girls basketball, Mason City falls to Decorah in regional finals. Decorah's high school's gym is adorned with banners that date back decades. Many state qualifying and conference championship winning teams are recognized in the rafters at DHS. Before Tuesday night, none of the banners recognized a top-performing girls' basketball team of any kind. But the Vikings changed that with a 67-61 win over Mason City in the IGHSAU Class 4A Region 5 championship game. With the win, the Vikings earned a spot in the 2023 IGHSAU State Basketball Tournament at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. The Vikings cut down the nets on their home floor and received a blue banner with an IGHSAU logo on it to commemorate their achievement. I started this position seven years ago, Decora head coach Shannon Quandall said postgame. As head coach, it's always your dream to be going to state and cutting down the nets. It's pretty surreal, to be honest. I don't think it's all sunk in yet. But it will. You know, we always talked about how there wasn't a girls' basketball flag hanging from the ceiling. Mason City took Decorah to the brink. In the first half, the Riverhawks led the Vikings by two possessions on multiple occasions. Decorah, however, trimmed its deficit to one point at halftime. The slim lead wasn't enough to push the Riverhawks to the state tournament. Decorah made some adjustments in the second half that slowed Mason City's offense. The Vikings focused in on guard Reggie Spots in particular. She finished the game with 26 points. Spots hit four three-pointers in the first half, but in the second, Decor began to pick her up near half court and held her to one three-point make after halftime. We knew that we needed to defend the perimeter, Quandall said. They also have a triple drive offense where they like to attack the paint. So we knew that we had to close out on those big high hands with those shooters. We just needed to emphasize that a little more in the second half. With spots slow, Decorah went on a 19-10 scoring run in the third period. Mason City trailed by eight at the end of the frame. I think they really tried to pressure Reggie more coming down to the more coming down the floor to try to get the ball out of her hands. Mason City head coach Kurt Clausen said post game, "You know, there's something that maybe we just that we didn't adjust to quite as well as we could have." Mason City rallied back into the game in the fourth quarter. The River Hawks even tried to tie the contest with three minutes and 58 seconds remaining. Mason City switched to a triangle and two defense in the middle of the second half to put more pressure on Decora. But the Vikings' top scorers, Haley Gossman, Yasmin Witsit, and Briar Dewey, ultimately did enough to propel their team to the state tournament. Gossman, Witsit, and Dewey put up 21, 12, and 20 points, respectively. 
Even at the end, we were running the triangle in two, Clausen said. They got some rebounds, so give them credit. You know, they had some good athletes inside, so they got some putbacks, and that hurt us. That always hurts you in that kind of defense. You know, we had to try and do something. Credit to Cora, they're a great team. They've had an awesome season. They deserve to host tonight, and they're going to represent our region well down in Des Moines. Callie Johnson is going out on top. The Forest City senior won the IGHSAU Class 1A Individual State Bowling Tournament at Maple Lanes in Waterloo Tuesday afternoon. Johnson dominated the tournament, receiving the top seed in the round of eight. She defeated all of her opponents by more than 25 pins. Feeling great, Johnson told Ethan Petrick of the Waterloo Cedar Fall Courier. Way better to go out this way than to lose and be sad about it. Vinton Shellsburg's Kylie Kirchner gave Johnson her closest match, posting a score of 209. Johnson rallied past Kirchner, knocking down 237 pins. In the state semifinal and championship rounds, neither of Johnson's opponents posted a score over 200. Johnson registered games of 222 and 249 in the semis and finals, respectively. I know, I know where I want to throw my ball, Johnson said, and if I put my eye on it, it's going to go where I want it to. Johnson's season average was 10 pins lower this year than it was a year ago, but that didn't shake her confidence heading into the postseason. The Charles City boys basketball team won its first postseason game in style Monday night. The Comets breezed past the Independence Mustangs by nearly 40 points at home. Charles City picked up a 71-33 victory with stout play on the defensive end of the floor. The Comets held the Mustangs to single digits, uh, single digit scoring totals in the second, third, and fourth quarters. Charles City outscored Independence 45-15 in the second and third periods combined. The Mustangs mustered 23 points in the final three quarters of the game. Junior guard Cam Mestis led the charge for Charles City on offense, racking up 23 points without a single made three-pointer. Forward Keenan Wiley and guard Brennan Schmidt also scored in double figures, dropping 14 and 12 points, respectively. Charles City will play Mount Vernon in Class 3A substate semifinal game at home Thursday night. Tip-off is scheduled for 7 p.m. Clear Lake 67 over Hampton-Dumont-Cal 35. The Lions started their postseason run with a bang. Clear Lake bashed HDC at home, claiming a 32-point victory. Southeast Polk 64 over Mason City 58. The Riverhawks season is over. Mason City fell to Southeast Polk in Class 4A quarterfinal game on the road Monday evening. Mason City rallied by two points at halftime. Then in the third quarter, the Rams threw a punch that the Riverhawks couldn't recover from. Southeast Polk outscored Mason City 28-12 in the frame. The Riverhawks tried to claw back into the game in the fourth quarter. Mason City outplayed Southeast Polk 24-12 in the final frame of the game. The Riverhawks' counterpunch, however, wasn't enough to stave off elimination. I have to give big congratulations to Southeast Polk, who played a great game. Mason City head coach Nick Trask wrote in an email to the Globe Gazette. I am super proud of my boys, and I know the city of Mason City should be very proud of the boys' basketball players, and how they play the game and fought every second. Uh, with that, I think we'll go ahead and close with our weather. Today, for February 23rd, overcast, a few flurries or snow showers possible, high around 20 degrees, winds northwest at 15 to 25 miles an hour. Tonight, partly cloudy skies, a low of minus 3 degrees, winds northwest at 15 to 25 miles an hour. Tomorrow, Cloudy, 
Snow showers developing in the afternoon, high of 14 degrees, winds northeast at 5 to 10 miles an hour, and a chance of snow at 40%. And that does it for today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette for today, February 23, 2023. I'm your reader, Ben Stein. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, anytime. Thank you for listening. People's Pharmacy Health Headlines. At high doses, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like diclofenac, ibuprofen, or naproxen may increase the risk of kidney problems. The study that revealed this used de-identified medical records of more than 750,000 active-duty U.S. Army soldiers. Consequently, these were active young and middle-aged adults. During the time of the study, from 2011 through 2014, nearly 18% of these soldiers got a prescription for one to seven doses of an NSAID pain reliever in a month. Another 16% were prescribed more than seven doses in a month. Fewer than 1% of these people were subsequently diagnosed with acute or chronic kidney disease. Nevertheless, the rate of kidney trouble was about 20% higher among people who had received high-dose NSAIDs than among those who had taken none. The authors described the increased risk as modest but statistically significant. Another class of drugs that can lead to kidney injury is proton pump inhibitors. A data mining initiative of the FDA's Adverse Event Reporting System analyzed kidney-related side effects among 43,000 people who took a drug such as esomeprazole, lansoprazole, or omeprazole. Approximately 8,000 people taking a histamine 2 blocker such as ranitidine or famotidine served as controls since they take these drugs for similar symptoms. The researchers found that 5.6% of people on PPIs alone had a kidney-related side effect, while only 0.7% of those on H2 blockers did. Chronic kidney disease was 28 times more likely, and acute kidney injury was four times more likely among people taking PPIs. While this analysis shows association, not causation, there are previous studies linking PPIs and kidney damage. There's growing concern about a mysterious infectious disease that has been spreading among the wild deer population for decades. Scientists call it CWD, or chronic wasting disease. Hunters refer to this condition as zombie deer disease. It can also affect elk and moose. The CDC reports that this infectious disease has spread to wildlife in 24 states and two Canadian provinces. CWD was first detected in Colorado among captive deer in the 1960s and in the wild deer population in the 1980s. 
It's now affecting deer in the Midwest, Southwest, and some parts of the East Coast. The disease appears to be caused by a prion infection reminiscent of mad cow disease. An infectious disease expert at the University of Minnesota has warned that hunters who eat contaminated deer meat may eventually develop the human equivalent of chronic wasting disease. Shoulder replacement surgery is becoming increasingly common. Now researchers writing in the BMJ say that patients should be warned that the risks are higher than originally thought. The investigators reviewed hospital and mortality records in the UK. When men between 50 and 59 have this type of shoulder surgery, one in four will need further surgery on that shoulder within five years. In addition, older people who underwent this kind of surgical procedure experienced high rates of serious adverse events. One in nine older women and one in five older men had an infection, major blood clot, heart attack or stroke, or died within three months. The authors of the study encouraged their colleagues to counsel patients about the risks as well as the benefits of this kind of surgery. Drug interactions are a serious hazard in hospitals and the community. If patients receive prescriptions for incompatible medications, they can experience severe side effects that may even be life-threatening. Electronic medical records are intended to warn prescribers and pharmacists about potentially dangerous interactions, but many do so indiscriminately. The result is something called alert fatigue. If clinicians receive too many warnings, they may not pay attention to the really important ones. A team at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital reviewed their alert system. They removed unnecessary alerts and provided additional information to the most important ones. After they finished, they tracked clinicians' reactions. Alert overrides dropped by 40%. One important change linked alerts to the patient's laboratory data, making them much more targeted. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week.